0: There's nothing more thrilling than nailing an insurance company. And the truth shall set you free. I want the truth.
1: You can't
0: handle the truth. Great moments are born in great opportunity.
1: Thanks for stopping by, everybody. This is the uh, next installation of Terry's Takes, the month being October 2022. We've got four cases that Terry teed up for us, so let's just kind of jump right into it. First case comes out of the First District Court of Appeal in Florida. It's an opinion, uh, excuse me, it's an opinion written by uh, Judge Jay, but going to butcher the name of the case, Gohila v. Seymour. But it's a family law appeal, but it does bear on a rule that applies across the board for civil practitioners. So, Terry, why don't you tell us what happened on this one?
0: Yeah, hey, welcome, everybody. Um, so this one is, uh, like Jordan said, it's a family law case. So we say, why are we looking at that? This is a personal injury uh, you know, podcast and summaries. This opinion could be a shot across the bow as honestly, as someone who's done fair amount of litigation, but also a lot amount of appeals, what they're talking about in this case has more chance of changing the landscape of Florida litigation and appeals than just about anything I can think of, because how often do you file a 1.54 B1 motion uh, based on mistake or inadvertence or surprise? and the family law rule they note in the opinion that's 12.540 b1 and they say it's basically the same so this is interchangeable with the civil rule of procedure or the family rule of procedure it's also modeled after uh, federal rule 60 b1 with this mistake inadvertence or surprise and there's been a big difference between how florida applies this rule and how the feds apply this rule and in 2022 this year the United States Supreme Court in a case called Kemp versus United States of America that's 142 Supreme Court 1856 they said something really brand new that's a big difference in in the past a mistake means a mistake of fact someone said something that is wrong you go back and say judge you know this this we said that this was uh uh, the injury happened on this date, but it really happened on this date, so you're wrong to find statute of limitations applied or or whatever mistake of fact you could dream up. The Supreme Court now says that a mistake can include a mistake of law. And Florida has always said, look, that's what appeals are for. Mistakes of law, you take cert, you take an appeal, you do something like that. That's not what Rule 1.540B1 is about. And in this case, the, second district court of, or the first District Court of Appeal didn't Hold that they're changing that rule, but they did say our rule is uh, modeled after the federal rule, and so we might change it. We don't have to change it today because the the woman in the family law case didn't prove a mistake of law or fact. She entered a mediation agreement, and that would be inviting the error. She was fighting about uh, imputing income versus child support. The, The family law case really doesn't matter. They said she's wrong. There's no mistake of fact or law. Anyway way you slice it. So we're leaving this question for another day. But the, the thing here is, if you think there's a mistake of law, you should be filing 1.540B1 motions now, citing this Kev case, citing Rule 60B1 and saying, the idea that you can't challenge a mistake of law under this rule is wrong. And, uh, you know, the court should, uh fix an error of law that it's made, you know, within the past year, this could really, like I said, change the landscape because it's almost like a, um, a review or a, a, an appeal in the circuit court. And I, I, I think if they change the rule, it's, it's going to be a, a huge change. I don't, I don't know what, what Jordan's take on Terry's take is, but I, I think this could be a big,
1: deal. yeah, no, I, I feel similarly. I think, you know, there's a few, a few uh, pieces that I'm left with here. One Rare is the situation where the Supreme Court interprets a federal rule of procedure, and then our state rule is modeled after the federal rule, and we don't eventually follow that interpretation. I mean, it happens. There are examples, but generally speaking, there's uh, consistency between state and federal in those specific contexts. Yeah, they I, might I, find
0: it's, this is crazy because, I mean, the Supreme Court has said this, but if you can imagine as a litigator, every time a judge makes a ruling, someone files a one motion saying – Judge, you're wrong on the law here. Uh, you know, I mean, you can only do it once, but essentially every call that a judge makes is kind of up for grabs as of this Yeah, moment. well,
1: I think, and I, but I think strategically, I try not to file what I'll just colloquially call like motions for reconsideration with the trial court um, when the only reason I want them to reconsider their ruling is because I think they got it wrong. But where the if you really were to break it down, it's they heard arguments from both sides, and they were persuaded by the other one. I don't think that's an appropriate use of your time. It's probably just going to piss the judge off. But there are many cases and situations that Terry began talking about where a ruling comes out and you read the order and you say, I don't, I don't think the judge actually understood the facts, even the undisputed facts, like Terry gave a date as an example. So you want to move for reconsideration or say, hey, you made a mistake of fact. But so often, you will get an order that you read the legal analysis and you just say they're either overlooking a case or they're misapplying a case it's a mistake of law and you're left to feel like well i've just got to go take plenary appeal or seek you know discretionary review with the DCA and while you can do that how much time does that take and effort and t- time is wasted in the appellate court and all of that i shouldn't say wasted but you know what i mean like you have to you have to be so patient in order to get a review here's an opportunity now to Terry's point, we should start pressing the issues with these 1.540 B1 motions back in the trial court and say, look, all due respect, you missed this point of law. You made a mistake. Just correct it. Let's not have to go to the appellate court. So I know know, I I completely
0: agree with you that, you know, what are the chances that the judge if if they've really considered the issue is going to change their mind? It's pretty low, right? You're asking the judge to basically reverse themselves, but I see two doors opening. It's the kind of practitioners who either, um, you know, have sour grapes and just cannot accept a loss, and they keep pushing. And again, it's going to involve a lot of extra wasted time, maybe extra hearings on these, setting these for hearings. But the other thing it encourages, I think, is sort of sloppiness or lack of preparation, where you file some one-page response to somebody's motion, you don't give it a lot of time, they rule against you, and now suddenly you want to file a 25-page monster saying all the ways in which you were wrong because you know you had this sort of do over opportunity under the rule. So do I think it's a, a great rule change? It's probably not, but it's, it, it could be important. Not every change that's important is great, but, um, but this could be a big one.
1: All right, so let's move on down. The second case we're going to talk about coincidentally comes from the second district court of appeal in Florida. It's an opinion. Uh, the majority was written by Judge Atkinson. The case is Martin versus City of Tampa and Columbia Food Services. So I know this case is near and dear to your heart. Figuratively speaking, Terry as a, a native of Tampa who's been to this particular restaurant, but why don't you shed some light on what happened and what this case is about. Yeah, that's
0: right. And just for some background, just a shout out to my dad. This is his favorite restaurant and it's been open since 1905. It's the largest, apparently, from, according to the opinion, it's like a free ad for the uh, restaurant. But the opinion says that it's the largest Spanish restaurant in the world. Um, and uh, so, and my dad loves it, so he'll, he'll enjoy hearing this. Uh, so, I don't know if we'll be able to get a picture on there um, or if there's you know rights issues with the picture, but you can Google Columbia Restaurant I- images and put up Tampa or Ybor City and you can get a really good view of what they're talking about. The picture's worth a thousand words. I'm, I'm looking at one right now. The restaurant has these sort of stylized, almost um, thin columns that go out on the sidewalk. And that's from this encroachment agreement that the restaurant has with the city that we're allowed to put these sort of this is an awning and a, like a roof. They call it an awning, but it's, it's more like a, a roof with columns outside the, um, outside the restaurant. And the issue, of course, is that they've got these hexagonal pavers. They're basically tiles that are set into the sidewalk. And one is sticking up a little bit. And of, of course, uh, someone comes and trips on it, falls, gets hurt and wants to sue. And the issue is, are you suing the city for a problem with the city sidewalk? or because of this awning and, and the fact that it's right outside the Columbia restaurant and it's right outside their door. Uh, do they have? Uh, does the restaurant have a duty? Is, is that someone you can sue over this paver that's sticking up? And the court said no, and this is a case about duty. Uh, it's, it's important to uh, note here that uh, the duty, the court says, is a question of law, even though there's some fact-finding, which is, a uh, we're in this gray area here where is this kind of thing supposed to go to a jury? They said, no, This the judge can resolve this. And they say, they remind us that there's four sources of duty. There's legislative enactments or administrative rules, basically some sort of rule or law that creates a duty. Judicial interpretations of that stuff, so case law, other judicial precedent, and then the fun one, because uh, it means almost nothing—a duty arising from the general facts of the case, which sort of means there's a duty if we say it is, I guess. Um, but the the weird thing about this case is that there's this encroachment agreement where they're allowed to put the awning on the sidewalk. This is right outside their door. The restaurant has what they call porters. It's kind of fancy, where almost like a, a concierge or something that keeps an eye on the sidewalk. But if something's wrong with it, they report it to management. Management reports it to the city. And the other thing that, that comes into play here, and whether this is a legislative enactment or administrative regulation, is that flo- uh, uh, Tampa has a, uh, a city ordinance that says if there's a problem with a sidewalk that's outside of business, the city gives the business 15 days to fix it. And if they don't, then the business is liable for repairs and fines for a public nuisance. Why the business has the obligation to repair the city sidewalk is not really discussed in the opinion and I'd love to hear maybe Jordan's got some experience with something like this or maybe some of you have if you want to you know shoot me an email it's Terry at frtriallawyers.com. Uh, and, and maybe we'll on uh, the next time we'll we'll talk a bit more about it. but the court says just because you have this encroachment agreement, you have a duty to take care of the awning, but not what's below the awning, meaning the sidewalk right below it. And uh, they say possession and control of an area can create a duty, but your restaurant's just adjacent to it. This is a city sidewalk and it didn't matter if the sidewalk was right outside their door or was a whole block away. Um, How that plays into the fact that the city can send a notice to them and say, you need to fix this sidewalk uh, or you'll be responsible for a public nuisance and we're going to fine you and uh, send you a bill for the repairs is kind of a bit of a, a mystery to me. It's either your sidewalk or not. Um, and why you have responsibility to fix it. If the city spots this, but have no duty to people coming in and out of the restaurant on that very same sidewalk uh, is is a bit of a mystery to me. But- this
1: uh, this opinion, I think you had to know. Yeah. October 19th, 2022 is when it was issued. So I guess, still, technically speaking, we're within a window, I mean, we're not handling this case, we have no affiliation with it whatsoever. But technically, legally, there's a there's a window still within which maybe discretionary review could be sought in the Florida Supreme Court. And I'm going to be curious to see if it is sought and then later accepted, because as I read the opinion, um, I'm troubled by it. I mean, look, you got to live with live with the law. And that's the law. At least in, in the second district court of appeal, but under the particular factual circumstances of that case, and for me, particularly two things. You can build the restaurant could build an awning over the sidewalk, knowing that it's gonna invite customers to have to walk through it, but they're not responsible for the sidewalk beneath the awning. And then that the city still has some liability for excuse me, that the restaurant still has some uh liability from the city, you know, if, if things aren't maintained properly. I, I find it to be a problematic opinion for me, like just from a practical standpoint. I understand the thread that the second district was was pulling, but um, you know, this is something that the plaintiffs' bar is going to have to pay close attention to, especially if you handle premises liability cases. This happens; it's not such a unique situation. Let's put it that way: where somebody falls outside of a business, you know, and then you want to find out first, you know, who's responsible for maintaining the premises. And there's kind of a blurred line. And I think there's a lot of practitioners out there who might just take for granted that oh, it's just immediately adjacent; it's a couple feet away from this business; it's got to be their responsibility. Well maybe not so fast. So be careful. And I think to Terry's point, although duty is a matter of law to be decided by the court, or let's say can be decided by the court, make it a factual inquiry, make it hyper fact specific, you know, so that way you're not dealing with a situation where this case can have you on all fours as a matter of law.
0: Um, All right. And they, and they did expressly distinguish a case. I think it came up out of Jacksonville where a restaurant had an agreement with the city that they could have outdoor dining on a sidewalk and they were responsible for taking care of the sidewalk And in that, you know, they showed possession and control. So right to Jordan's point, just if you have a case that's kind of like this, you want to try and nudge it over towards showing every little bit of control that the restaurant might be exerting over the sidewalk.
1: All right, the next case we're going to talk about comes from the Supreme Court of Florida. It's Suarez Trucking, Florida Corp. et al. versus Souders, S-O-U-D-E-R-S. Came out October 20th this year, so very recent there are multiple opinions that come out with some justices joining others. So you're going to have to piece together what the common threads are here, and Terry can help us with that. But basically, it's a really important case to pay attention to because it's an offer of judgment or some people call it proposal for settlement uh, interpretation. So in Florida, that statute section is uh, 768.79. There's an analogous rule of procedure to kind of enable it. I think that's rule 1.442 or 440. I don't remember. That's but right, 1.442. So, um, Terry, tell us what, what the important takeaways are from this case.
0: Well, yeah, and, it, you know, the, the, the main opinion, it's per curium, so nobody signed it. But um, there was really just a concurrence and one dissent, and the newest justice, Justice Francis, uh, didn't take part, I think, because she wasn't around for the oral argument, which is, that's you know, they normally don't weigh in if they weren't there at the argument stage. Uh, but it, it's basically a 5-1 opinion with a, an additional concurrence that goes over and above what the majority opinion or
1: the per curiam opinion says that's written by Justice Kennedy um so I just let me just set the stage conceptually like and I'm going to paint in very broad strokes but I mean generally speaking most states have statutes Florida has one Georgia has one that basically say either party can serve a settlement offer in writing with specific terms and that creates basically a 30-day window of opportunity for the other side to accept it in writing. I mean, that's just the idea. You might ask yourself, well, what, why the hell do we need a statute on that? Can't parties just negotiate settlements themselves? And the answer is yes, of course. But there's a special mechanism, a fee-shifting mechanism with these proposals for settlement or offer of judgment statutes, which basically say, in short, if you serve one of these and the other side fails to timely accept it, now they have incurred the potential contingent risk where if they go to trial and don't prevail and recover a certain percentage of that offer, they might have to pay your attorney's fees. So I just wanted to like kind of set the stage with that. But all right, tell us what happened here.
0: Yeah, right. The big broad strokes here. This is the offer and acceptance for,
1: for plaintiff's lawyers, for for tort lawyers.
0: This is the opinion to go to for now for when offer and acceptance happens. This this is kind of a, a big deal. Um and it wasn't as cut and dry as the Florida Supreme Court says. They were reviewing the Second District Court of Appeals opinion uh, by Judge Sleet and uh, Judge casanueva and there had been a dissent in uh, by Judge Atkinson in that opinion and the Florida Supreme Court lays waste to them all even the dissent said the second DCA is avoiding reality so this was not a cut and dry opinion and this is like the direction that the Florida Supreme Court is going and this is what offer and acceptance is in Florida for tort cases now so the uh in in this case defense says uh we want to settle with you plaintiff for five hundred thousand dollars. you know they recite a bunch of of terms they say you have to pay within 10 days and of course the offer is good for 30 days under the statute so then the plaintiffs and defense attorneys get on the call with each other and the defense says um hey i'd like to make the check out to you as the attorney the plaintiff And the workers' compensation carrier for this plaintiff, because uh, if you're not too familiar, uh, every plaintiff's attorney or personal injury attorney should be, if if the person's an injured employee, but there is a tort suit, and this was a third-party tort suit, not suing the employer. So they were suing someone else that was responsible. The workers' comp carrier who may have provided some benefits, uh, lost wages or some medical care, they've got a lien by law, and you just can't go and settle a personal injury case without involving them. But the plaintiff's attorney said, that's all well and fine, I, I can resolve the lien, but make the check out to me and the client. Do not make it out to an insurance company also where I can't cash the check without coordinating with them. They disagreed on this. But at the end of the 30 days, uh, the plaintiff in writing accepts the offer. The problem with this arguing about whose name is gonna be on the check is, it's all oral, it's not written. and. I guess if they had done this in email, the result might've been different, but apparently these were oral communications. They didn't say telephone in the opinion, but I think there were phone calls. rule 1.442 basically says, take all the oral communication about the offer and acceptance and toss it in the trash. We're just gonna look at what's written. And Florida has something called the mirror image rule, which is this opinion says mirror image rule is just as simple as can be whatever terms are in an offer, the person accepting it has to accept it without qualification. It's just a stone cold. Yes. And that's what we got from the plaintiff here. They, they said in regard to your offer sent on blah, blah, blah date, we accept it. And that was it. And the Florida Supreme court says it's hard to imagine a form of acceptance that could be more clear or effective. So note to practitioners, if you want a binding acceptance, reciting the date of the offer and just saying, yeah, we accept it. That's going to be a great thing to do. Some courts in the past have said that you need to recite all the terms and say, yes, I'm agreeing to them all. Florida Supreme court shoots that down and says that the mirror rule in Florida is a rule of consistence, not regurgitation. So that's nice to bring a vomit image into it, but basically there is no need to parrot back all the terms. And if you really want to accept an offer, You're just going to mess it up because if if you recite one of the terms incorrectly, then, you know, it's not going to be an unqualified acceptance and you're going to, you're going to void your agreement. So just, just say yes, basically. Um, The uh, Justice uh, Kennedy had said that, well, the other issue in the case was they, they had to pay within 10 days. And here they are disagreeing about who the check is going to be made out to. Justice LaBarga dissents because of this. He says, I don't care that it's oral communication. Rule 1.442F1 about barring oral communications does not bar a trial court from finding there's no meeting of the minds when the parties don't even agree on who's going to get paid. It's too important a term that if the parties agree on this, there's no meeting of the minds. I would void this. But the majority says, no, there's offer and acceptance and in the offer, they said, uh, you can accept our offer and pay in 10 days. And the other side of the case, wanting to void this agreement, said, uh, the plaintiff said, um, well, so the payment part of this and who to pay, whom to pay, uh, becomes this material term. And the fact that they didn't pay within 10 days is going to avoid this. The Florida Supreme Court said, no, there's offer and acceptance. Performance is something later that comes down the road. And it's it's it. the fact that they perform the, you know, paying within 10 days or performance of the agreement has nothing to do with offer and acceptance. You can move to enforce it even if someone hasn't lived up to the agreement. Um, so basically they're shooting down, you know, if you want to talk about some terms, do it in writing, don't do it on the phone. And uh, if you want to, to validly accept, recite the date of the order uh, enough to identify it, what you're talking about, and just say we accept, basically.
1: Um, yeah. Now, look, I, I'll I'll say this: it's it's not as common as one might think, where the defense is serving proposals for settlement under the statute that are so appealing that the client, it's truly in the client's best interest, and he or she wants to take it. So, this is not a common occurrence. But the bigger takeaway here is this, in my mind, which is be super careful about the terms that you're providing if you're propounding a proposal for settlement and the terms that they're putting in theirs if it's the defense serving it on you and your client. Be careful about how, how you respond to it, not just like when you respond to it, obviously within 30 days, but how, to Terry's point. If you're going to have oral communications, okay, but you better contemporaneously or shortly thereafter memorialize them in writing because you don't want something like this to come up. Exactly. If the plan- the
0: plaintiff's taking this up to the second DCA in the Supreme Court of Florida and had, they just said in writing, Hey, if you want to pay the workers comp carrier, no deal. Um, you know, the case would have been over. Uh, the fact that it was on the phone killed their case. So um, a lot of wasted time and effort to get uh, out of an agreement.
1: All right. So let's, let's go, let's talk about the fourth and final case for for purposes of today, at least this one's federal in nature comes from the 11th circuit court of appeals Kordash with a K versus USA. This is a case, in essence, where a lawsuit is being brought against federal agents uh, dealing with airport security. The allegations boiled to their essence are, hey, you detained me for too long and therefore violated my constitutional rights. So this is um, a type of lawsuit that you'll see from time to time, whether you handle them or not, surely you read or heard about them. This particular one, though, the first iteration of the complaint kind of is framed as just a pure Bivens 1983 action constitutional rights. That's it. It gets dismissed. Instead of taking an appeal, the plaintiff just files an amended complaint, this time electing to proceed a different vehicle for relief under the Federal Tort Claims Act, it's talking about things like false imprisonment and other concepts. So these are two distinct legal theories, or at least vehicles, to get your to get to where you want to go, and it's a unique way of, of dealing with the situation. Both got shit-canned by the trial court, the district court, before it finally ended up finding its way to the 11th Circuit. So Terry, tell us what happened here.
0: Yeah, well, as you said, the Bivens claim, and, and to be clear, it's a, a Bivens claim is kind of like a 1983 claim, but it doesn't arise under 1983. It's court created. That's when you're suing federal officials, uh, Federal officials. 1983 is when you're suing uh, people under color of state law. Basically the same thing. It's just the identity of who you're suing is different. And so he raised, you, you raise, uh, you, you sue for violation of constitutional rights. He raised Fourth Amendment claims, First Amendment claims. He basically was held in an airport for several hours. So, yeah, in the first stage, the, uh, the defense, uh, the, the, the um, airport workers, the security workers, they claim qualified immunity. And so the court goes through the whole analysis and says you didn't do anything wrong sufficient to uh, destroy your qualified immunity. So I'm, I'm dismissing this. And as Jordan said, uh, instead of appealing that, um, he just sort of admits, hey, I've lost my Bivens claim. I'm going to change this to a federal torts claim act. And Federal Torts Claim Act involves Congress uh, waiving federal workers' uh, sovereign immunity or immunity to uh, state tort claims. But the fact that he waved the white flag on a Bivens claim kills his case because the defense comes back and says a, a bunch of things. Collateral estoppel and the Supremacy Clause makes an appearance. A lot of us haven't looked at too many supremacy clause cases since uh, law school, because when does the supremacy clause come up? This case is pretty alarming for anyone who practices 1983 or Bivens claims. And you really have to watch about waving the white flag here, because what they said is the supremacy clause doesn't just mean the federal law, Trump's state law, when they conflict, they they say it goes deeper. When there's some federal mission which federal workers protecting airports and protecting borders and that sort of thing you know drug trade and things like that that's a federal mission and when the court said that these officers were basically doing their job and doing nothing wrong in the qualified immunity analysis that when they come back under federal tort claims act even though congress has expressly said under federal law, we want to waive immunity to these suits. They say that the federal mission of, of basically law enforcement or border enforcement or airport safety trumps the uh, the state claims such that collateral estoppel and race judicata apply. And basically, they import the analysis from the qualified immunity saying these these guys were doing their a great federal job. They were doing just fine. Uh, and they say if there's the nexus between the federal policy, that's interchangeable uh, between the Bivens claim and whether the officers acted within their discretionary authority and their actions were legal under federal law. And they strike the Federal uh, Tort Claims Act claims based on, hey, you, you, you know, you've already litigated this. Uh, the parties are identical. Uh, it was necessary to determine whether the officers did the right thing in the last part of the case. And um, and you had a full and fair opportunity to litigate this, and so you lose the Federal Tort Claims Act. There's so many ways to fall into you know qualified immunity and and the different barriers that plaintiffs have when you're trying to sue a government official. That the interchangeability between these it's pretty alarming, and so it's good for everyone to maybe read the opinion and just think as you're litigating. Okay, is is this test about whether what this official did is right, is this something that can destroy an element uh, of another claim, especially if you're dismissing and and refiling like we did here? Um, so that's that's it on this. I don't know if you've got any comments, Jordan. I just want to say one thing before we end, but but I, I don't know. If no, no
1: additional thoughts. comments on the Kordash case. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, it's pretty alarming. So just, just for note, uh, the Supreme Court starts up their term again every Mo- first Monday in October. So we've had a full month of oral arguments. There's no opinions yet, but it's Supreme Court uh, season. So stay tuned for that. You know, We've got a new uh, justice. Of course, it's more or less a 6-3 conservative uh, liberal split, but every judge on the court has joined the other side and there's a lot of drama. The big one right now is whether affirmative action will be able to continue in uh, university uh, admissions, those have been argued. It looks like race based um, factors in, in admission is about to uh, bite the dust the way Roe v. Wade did uh, last term. So, you know, we should have another exciting term and we'll, we'll uh, summarize it all. And pretty soon we'll have cases of the week, which are more than just the four or five cases of a month. You'll get the full rundown every week. Uh, those are going to be coming up on the web pretty soon. So follow that and that'll keep you up to date. Those will be posted weekly instead of monthly. This is a reminder.
1: All right. Well, thanks for tuning in for Terry's Takes, the monthly recap for October 2022. Uh, check out the notes or show notes wherever you're watching or listening. There's going to be some links to the opinions. And like Terry said, there'll be a link to the sub page on our website where you can read Terry's written analysis on these opinions too. That's it for now. Thanks for joining. Thanks a lot. See you soon. One, two, three, four. There's nothing more thrilling than nailing an insurance
0: company. And the truth shall set you free.
1: I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Great moments are
0: born in great opportunity.